This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week, Pat Perry. Pat Perry, pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds, card number 282. Okay, Pat Perry. Why did we choose Pat this week? This was a listener request, sort of. The Snorting (laughs) Bull on Twitter asked, have you done a Pat Perry episode yet? Uh, We have not done a Pat Perry episode, so I kind of just did a quick Google search of Pat Perry and found a little bit of a local connection and a little bit of a Friends of David connection here. We have a, a local legend, a painted cap, and a pretty unexpected success story for Pat Perry. Well, that sounds like more than enough for a 1988 Tops episode. So looking at the front of 282, we've got Pat Perry here with a headshot. I didn't realize this was a painted cap. This is a really good painted cap. The shirt is not so good. The shirt (laughs) definitely looks fake, looks painted on, but the hat is pretty good. So I did reach out to... Uh, past guest Andrew at Painted Cap on Twitter for his thoughts on this beautiful work of art. And I should also thank Andrew for sending me perhaps the best card ever, the Keith Comstock Las Vegas Stars man gets hit in the groin card. So thank (laughs) you so much for sending me that. That is a fantastic gift and and something that will stay in my family for years. (laughs) But When I reached out to ask for Andrew's opinion on this painted cap, he said, This one was nicely done. As far as I can tell, this artist applied the rare technique of cap ultra-realism, as well as center cap shadow, power collar striping, and creative shadow play. And you can really see that. It is unclear where the lighting on this is coming from that is casting the shadow of his face onto his right shoulder. But the cap is really realistic. Yeah, it looks good. It definitely looks like a Reds hat. And I wondered, with all of the work they did on the collar and the shirt, why they didn't do a little bit to help smooth out his two front teeth. I wasn't able to find anything about this chipped tooth, but maybe someday we'll have access to the MLBPA dental records. I I didn't (laughs) want to violate HIPAA or anything with looking into... (laughs) Pat Perry's teeth. Also, my Google search history is just a mess now. What's going on in the back of this picture, though? Where are they? The 88 Tops blog suggested that it looked that it looked like he was in front of a barn. Maybe that's a or maybe an airport hangar or just a really cheaply constructed minor league stadium. I I cannot tell what's going on back there. They could have photoshopped him into the barn raising scene from Seven Brides for Seven Brothers here. Yeah. Sorry. That that would have been nice. Is that a reference out of out of your wheelhouse i that that's a musical right or is that a, it's not shakespeare <laughs> is it it is stockholm syndrome the movie yeah all right. but okay. all right well whatever we can cut that I, out i'll leave it in that sounds great <laughs> now going to the back of 282 pat perry pitcher six feet one 170 pounds left-handed batter and thrower drafted by the astros in the second round of january 1978 Born February 4th, 1959, so Pat's got a birthday coming up here. Taylorville, Illinois was where he was born and a home in St. Louis, Missouri. On Twitter, after the suggestion of this card, 
the Two Strike Noise podcast jokingly called him Pat the Refrigerator Perry. Oddly enough, his given name is William Patrick Perry. He later played Mm. in Chicago, so he's at least the second most famous William Perry in Chicago sports history. No Sabre bio this week, but when I searched for Pat Perry baseball, one of the first things to come up is an article by past guest Bo from the One Million Cubs Project, and that article is titled The Pride of Taylorville, Illinois, Pat Perry. Taylorville, Illinois is a city of about 10,000 or so people, about 30 minutes southeast of Springfield, Illinois. When I saw that that's where Pat was from, I texted a friend who is from Taylorville, and I've spent some time there as well, knocking on doors and walking in a 4th of July parade. It's a nice town, and this friend is a few years younger than me, so I expected a quick no, no idea who you're talking about. Instead, he said, oh yeah, he was kind of a celebrity here. His jersey is hanging outside the gym in the high school. So Pat is a, is, is still a revered local baseball legend in Taylorville. A few other notes about Taylorville, aside from a few of my friends coming from there. In the late 80s and early 90s, there was an outbreak of a rare form of cancer, neuroblastoma, and it was linked to coal ash from a gas plant that contaminated the groundwater. The attorney in that case who argued on behalf of these families is a guy named Bill Clutter. Bill Clutter went on to found the Illinois Innocence Project, which has fought on behalf of the wrongfully convicted individuals in Illinois. A number of mistakes that Clutter and his organization uncovered of actual innocent people on death row in Illinois led to the abolition of the death penalty in the state. And Taylorville and Central Illinois generally is in Tornado Alley, and they've recently been hit by many tornadoes, including a 2018 tornado during that big outbreak that led to 49 confirmed tornadoes from Oklahoma all the way to Georgia. The largest tornado in that stretch was an F3 tornado that destroyed many buildings in Taylorville. Thankfully, uh, no one was killed in that incident. Famous Taylor villagers, other than a couple friends of the show here, John Corzine, who was the former governor of New Jersey, Yvonne Craig, who was Batgirl in the 1960s Batman TV show, and Johnny Orr. Johnny Orr, a big name in sports, played baseball, football, and basketball for the Taylorville Tornadoes, which is an unfortunate name. Yikes. (laughs) 1944 was a a big year for the Taylorville Tornadoes sports teams. The baseball and football teams each only had one loss, so that's pretty good. The basketball team went 45-0, winning the state title, and Orr played for all of those teams. He led the state in scoring. He made the Illinois State Tournament first team and the Illinois All-State first team. He later played basketball, football for the U of I, spent a year in the Navy, and went to Beloit College, where his high school coach was now the college coach at Beloit College, a guy named Dolph Stanley. After his college career, he became a professional player for a short period of time and then went on to coach UMass, Michigan, and finally at Iowa State. He went on to a combined nine NCAA tournaments, won two Big Ten Coach of the Year awards at Michigan, and remains the all-time winningest coach at Iowa State. And Johnny Orr passed away in 2013 at the age of 86, but he's a big name in Taylorville. While at Taylorville High, Pat was the MVP of the basketball team his senior year. Yeah, and that leads to the fun fact on the bottom of the card that Pat played amateur baseball in the Little League and American Legion programs. He and his wife have two daughters, Christina Renee and Rachel Lynn. Shocking fun fact that he played Little League. 
Normally we do joke about this kind of fun fact because it is the, the Captain Obvious fun fact. But when Pat was in, at Taylorville High School in the 70s, they had budget cuts and he only played baseball his sophomore season. So he didn't have a junior or senior high school season. So it was important that he kept playing American Legion ball and had that opportunity to play. Because he didn't have that high school season, he wasn't heavily recruited, and he instead went to play at Lincolnland Community College in Springfield. They have a pretty good history of community college baseball at Lincolnland. While there, according to baseball reference, as of last week, he was a teammate of Gary Gaetti in 1978. Or was he? When I looked into this, Gaetti was not listed anywhere on the Lincolnland Community College website. He's not in their Sports Hall of Fame, where Pat Perry is. In fact, he went to Lakeland Community College, which is a different LLCC, Mm. which is in Mattoon, Illinois, also in downstate Illinois. So understandable error, but that error is both on baseball reference and on his Sabre bio. I did send a note to baseball reference, and that has been changed. So... The, the good work of the 1988 Tops podcast is never done. You know, correcting Illinois Community College facts is an important goal of this <laughs> podcast. There's at least one other card in the 88 set with a Lincoln Land Community College alum, and that is Joe Slusarski, who was on the 88 Olympic team. Current Philly Nick Metan went to Lincoln Land. So Pat ends up playing one season at the correct LLCC. And set a school record with a 180 ERA. He also had a 381 batting average. When the January 1978 draft comes up, the scouts are noticing, and he ends up getting picked three spots ahead of Jesse Orozco. Picked up by the Astros and starts his career in the minors at Sarasota. And he pitched well in that first season. But if you look at his stats on baseball reference, it's 17 lines before he makes it to the pros. A lot of those are combined season totals, multiple teams in a season. He was a left-handed pitcher, so he's always in demand, but he spent a lot of time at the lower levels of the minors. He'd pitch okay at one level, get moved up, and struggle. And so in 1979, he splits time between rookie ball and A ball. 1980, spends all of it at A level. 81, pitches well at A-level, but then has a 6-plus ERA at AA. He's okay at AA Columbus in 1982 and is there to start the season in 1983, which was a really pivotal year for him. He starts at Columbus, where they move him into the starting rotation. Previously, he had been in middle relief. This move to the starting rotation didn't really go great. He had a 5-2 and two record, but his ERA was over 4, and his whip was over 1.6. So the Astros end up releasing him on June 24th. He ends up signing with Cleveland on July 1st and then gets sent to AA where he has a 6.75 ERA in four games and gets released again. So he's released by two different teams in three weeks. And that's where it could have ended or in this case, it really turned around. On August 3rd, 1983, he signed as a free agent with the Cardinals. And maybe it was the comfort of going back home at this point The A-level Cardinals affiliate was in Springfield, Illinois, the Springfield Cardinals. And Pat pitches really well. He has a 2.22 ERA in six appearances. That good form continues in 1984, and by the end of 84, he's at AAA Louisville, 
in AAA for the first time, having been in the league since 1978. Between AA and AAA, he had a 1.64 ERA in 46 appearances. 1985, he ends up pitching in 45 games at Louisville with a whip of only 1.04. Then he earns a September call-up in 1985 in the middle of a battle for the NL East title. The Cardinals at the time were tied for first with the Mets on September 12th. Whitey Herzog trusted Pat, a 26-year-old rookie who had bounced around and spent a lot of time at A in some really difficult situations. Cardinals were tied with the Mets, and his first game was at Shea Stadium against their rival. He comes in in the third inning, down 6-0, and he pitches four scoreless innings. That allowed the Cardinals to make a comeback to 6-5. He was taken out in the seventh, and the Mets ended up winning 7-6, but it's a really good start. And then he got a win in his second appearance against the Pirates, pitching two more scoreless innings in the second game of a doubleheader against Pittsburgh. After that game, the Cardinals were up one game in the standings, and they never looked back. They made it to the playoffs. Perry, for his part, didn't give up anything. He didn't give up a single run, earned or otherwise, in any of his six appearances. Unfortunately, he didn't make an appearance for the Cardinals in the playoffs or the World Series, but he did help them get there. In 1986, he ends up starting the season with the Cardinals and continues that scoreless run after giving up no runs in his 12.1 innings in 1985. He ends up starting his first three games without a hit or run over four innings. And this is the 24th best start ever to a pitching career. 16 and a third scoreless innings over nine games. Opponents hitting only 059 against him with only three singles. So what a great streak. Seems like the seems like the sky is the limit for young Pat Perry. Unfortunately, games 10, 11, and 12 of his career didn't go as well. He gave up runs in all of those. The perfect streak was over, but he still put together a solid season. He pitched much better away from Bush Stadium, which is interesting because Bush Stadium, not necessarily a hitter's park. He held batters to a 184 average away versus 306 at home. He pitched well from August on that season, 233 ERA in 18 games. The Cardinals unfortunately finished under 500. And so heading into the 1987 season, he's pretty much established as a good left-handed arm in the bullpen. And in 1987, he was okay for the Cardinals at the beginning of the season. He ended up with 45 relief appearances. However, he hits a little rocky patch starting in July. So July and August, his ERA is over five. And that takes us to the this way to the clubhouse that Pat was traded by the Cardinals to the Reds, August 30th, 1987. The Cardinals acquired pitcher Scott Terry, September 1st, 1987. Such a big deal, David, that they it took them two days to do it. I don't know why they didn't just say he was traded for Scott Terry. Normally, with a player-to-be-named-later situation, it takes them more than two days to figure out who they want to pick. So I appreciate the the specificity here of the This Way to the Clubhouse. <laughs> I also like that their names kind of rhyme, Pat Perry and Scott Terry. It's nice. Yeah, it does mean that you could probably, with a little help from Andrew at Paid in Cap, you could probably airbrush the jerseys pretty easily to make the Perry look like a Terry and make the Terry look like a Perry. I think that they also had the good luck that... The teams were visiting each other at the time of this trade. 
And so they didn't really have to go very far. And Pat just hopped on the plane with Cincinnati. How did things go for Pat in Cincinnati? He gave up no runs in his first seven appearances for the Reds. He didn't allow any inherited runners to score. And so we have another 15-inning scoreless streak on this new team in 1987. Combined for the season, he was pretty good. 206 average allowed in 57 appearances and a 118 ERA plus over 78 innings. So a great way to finish that season. He starts the 1988 season with the Reds. And of course, David, any Reds player, we need to check with the authoritative source. And that's Grandma's Reds scorebook. Yes, uh, listeners should follow at G scorebook on Twitter. So I asked Grandma's Red Scorebook what Grandma had to say about Pat Perry. She doesn't say anything specifically about him in any of his games, but she has most of them. Of significance, there's opening day in 1988. He got the win, and that was Chris Sabo's debut. And Pat pitched pretty well. A scoreless 12th inning, got a win in the home opener, and welcoming Chris Sabo to the major leagues and and into our hearts. To open that season... (laughs) He had another 3.2 scoreless innings, so 19 total scoreless innings to start his Reds career, but then he fell off a bit. Yeah, in 12 games with the Reds, he gave up 17 runs in 21 innings, 10 of those runs in just two rough outings, rough enough that the Reds were going to send him down to AAA, but Pat refused the assignment. So instead, the Reds came up with a backup plan, and that was trading him. (laughs) Yes, Leon Durham had asked for a trade back to his home in Cincinnati from the Cubs. Durham was slumping, experiencing drug and alcohol dependency, and the Cubs had Mark Grace. So Durham was surplus to requirements in Chicago. So the Reds trade Pat Perry with an undisclosed amount of cash to the Cubs Mm. for Leon Durham. I like undisclosed amount of cash. It's probably in unmarked bills in a briefcase carried by Pat Perry (laughs) on the plane. And so... He goes to Chicago, and and guess what? He was pretty good to start. Seems like everywhere he goes, he starts strong. His first seven games, seven innings, no earned runs. While he's with the Cubs in 1988, 3.32 ERA in 38 innings, and he had maybe the highlight of his career. We're going to take you now to Wrigley Field for a game of the Cubs hosting the Phillies on August 6, 1988, where Pat Perry has a fantastic day. Two balls, no strikes to count. Pat Perry, the hitter. Fly ball, left center field. Thompson going back, still going back, and it's gone. Pat Perry has belted a two-run home run on a 2-0 pitch, and Perry couldn't believe it. As he rounded second, he looked back to Eric Gregg just to make sure, and Eric Gregg gave him the home run sign. Pat Perry cannot believe it. A two-run home run on a 2-0 pitch. Perry tried to play it cool walking back to the dugout, but he is jumping up and down inside. And, David, a few notable things about this game. First of all, anytime we see a Steve Jeltz sighting, it's always noteworthy. You know, we've got the pitcher trying to work with Steve Jeltz to try to pick off Sean Dunstan at second. But... Then in the home run call, it's not Harry Carey. I do recognize the voice of Steve Stones, but I wonder if listeners at home, especially Cubs fans who watch games in the 80s, could pick out who the broadcaster is doing the play-by-play. 
here. Think it might be Dave Nelson, but would love some verification from Cubs fans. Harry shows up at the end of the game to do the post-game broadcast in which he talks about this game and he says Goose Gossage got his 300th save in this game. So it's a, a notable game for multiple reasons, one for a Hall of Famer and one for Pat Perry hitting a pretty good first and only home run of his career in 27 at-bats. You get to also see Andre Dawson, Rick Sutcliffe, Mark Grace all congratulating Perry in the dugout. He gets a curtain call. As he's running the bases, looks back at the umpire just to double check and make sure that the umpire is making the home run signal. Really a a fantastic moment for Pat Perry. It was nice, too, to hear that at that time Wrigley Field was rolling out an express bus service for up to 1,500 parking spots available I think that that bus line might still exist. You can park over closer to the river and hop on the bus. Oh, yeah. I don't know where the lot yeah, is. Yeah, Lane Tech. Yeah. I, I think... mean, I think it's at Lane Tech. 1989 starts out rough, even in spring training for Pat. He has some big issues with Don Zimmer. Zimmer would leave him on the bench for long stretches of time in spring training, and Perry didn't know why. He didn't know what he did, and he didn't feel ready to pitch at his best. For the last two weeks of spring training, he wasn't put in a game. In the second game of the season at Wrigley Field, he pitches three innings, and he said he didn't have great stuff, but he made it through three innings. And then in the fourth, he lost control, and he walks a couple guys, throws a wild pitch, intentionally walks Mike Schmidt to load the bases, and then ends up walking in a run. So he's pulled from the game, and after the game, reporters are asking him what happened in that fourth inning, and he says... Ask Zimmer why I haven't pitched for two weeks. Zimmer did not appreciate this and paid him a visit, let him know he's in the doghouse, and that he would have to work to get out of the doghouse. So Pat had some motivation. And as he had in the past, he went on a really good streak. 20-plus scoreless innings. And in the course of that run, there's this article in, I think, the Decatur newspaper. And Bo from One Million Cubs Project found this. And I, I... We'll post it. it. It's a very sweet article written by a woman from Decatur named Betty. And Betty and her husband visit the friendly confines. Yes, the column is called Prairie Talk by Betty Boyd. And Betty is recounting her day at the ballpark with her husband. I'm just going to summarize a bit, David, of what's going on in the story by Betty. Because it really is a good day in the life of a Cubs fan from, from downstate. And so Betty and her husband drive to Chicago on a Saturday. She's reading aloud the sports section of the Herald and Review so they would be up to date on the Cubs. So they're they're looking forward to seeing Pat Perry because he is from Taylorville. And then she mentions that there's an interesting place where fans meet after the game for their favorite beverage, some food and excellent conversation right across the street from Wrigley Field. It's this place called Murphy's Bleachers. <laughs> I I don't know if we ever have at the same time, but I have certainly been there before. And as they're standing there talking with other fans, she notices a handsome young man standing all alone against the counter, just watching the world go by. And she tells her husband, that's Pat Perry. Husband says, it couldn't be Pat Perry. He's too tall to be Pat Perry. <laughs> But it turns out it is. It's Pat Perry. She goes up and talks to him. What a delightful young man. He's very honest. He told some very interesting facts about all of the clubs. And all the while, I noticed that others gave him a second look. So she's very smitten by Pat. 
And it seems like just a great day at the ballpark. And she f- ends with this prediction, David. She said, I'll bet that by this time next year, Pat Perry won't be standing in Murphy's bleachers without a crowd around him asking for autographs. He was a winner. He is a winner on and off the field. We appreciated your kindness, Pat. It's just a, what a delightful story from Betty. She mentions that at the time she went, Pat had pitched 19 and two-thirds scoreless innings in relief for the Cubs, which means it was right around the time that streak was ending. Yeah, that visit by Betty must have been in late May, early June. His next appearance after that might have been the one where he gave up three runs against the Mets on June 7th. He had a couple more Mm. decent outings against St. Louis the next week, and then the Cubs went to Shea Stadium. Yeah, and things take a terrible turn. He attempts to throw from a lower arm angle against Dave Magadan and tears his rotator cuff. The surgery was delayed at first, so he spends June and July on the DL. And then later in the season, he ends up fighting with Cubs management in the press. He said that doctors wanted to see him throw to see if he needed surgery, and the Cubs told him, don't do the throwing at Wrigley Field, that it would be a distraction. And so Pat feels like he's being pushed away. The doctors say they need to see him throw. The team won't let him throw in order to check on whether to have the surgery done. And so he ends up not having the surgery done until the off season. And then in December, the Cubs cut him. He was great, though, in that 1989 season. Big year for the Cubs. He had a 1.77 ERA in 19 games. In the offseason, he signs with the Dodgers. He tried to make a comeback maybe a little bit too soon. It was only six months after his surgery in 1990, and the pain was still there in his arm. In the seven games that he pitches for the Dodgers, he's generally ineffective with an 8.1 ERA. He tries to catch on with the Phillies and the Padres and struggles a bit in AAA. Then much later, in 1995, during the strike, at age 36, he attempts to come in as a replacement player, signing with the Royals, and he makes it five games at AAA, but that was it. And so closing the book on Pat Perry, 182 games pitched in the majors, 12 and 10, with a whip of 1.194 and an ERA plus of 112, so above average during the time that he pitched. How about in retirement? Matt, earlier you read the rest of that fun fact. In 1988, he had two kids. In the years since, he divorced, remarried, and had a few more kids. I think he had five total. Pat said that he didn't want to retire. He wasn't ready. He had a lot of bitterness about his career. Bitterness toward the managers who had released him or didn't give him a chance. And it took him a while to admit that it was over. He also didn't know what to do. And he said... Somebody with one year of college doesn't have much appeal. Pat made maybe $150,000 at at the peak of his salary. He wasn't incredibly wealthy, and he's got to figure out what the next thing to do is. And he found that teaching kids and coaching was the one thing that made sense to him the way that playing baseball made sense to him. And that kind of takes us back to the request here. I asked Snorting Bull, is there any particular reason why you suggested this card, you know, other than the beautiful painted cap and the chipped tooth. (laughs) And he said, I had a student a few years ago who moved to North Carolina from somewhere in central Illinois, and he went to a baseball camp and got a glove from Pat Perry. And he would bring the glove in and play catch at recess. And that's really not the player you'd expect 
a student to name drop. So Pat is back in central Illinois, St. Louis area as well, coaching youth pitching and training kids, and he has baseball clinics. He donates equipment to the Boys and Girls Club and makes donation to local food pantries and is generally giving back to the community. So Pat here is a local guy who made it big and came back. In his playing career, he had those really good streaks. One of the best scoreless runs for a relief pitcher to start his career. And he was really effective in a short time in Major League Baseball. Andy from High Heat Stats pointed out a really cool stat on the 88 Tops blog. During Pat's career, 1985 to 1990, he's in the top 25 for fewest hits per nine innings. Pretty impressive considering the other names on that list. He's just ahead of Roger Clemens. Floyd Yeomans is also on that list. but And now he's back and giving back to kids in his community, and that kindness spread all the way to North Carolina. The comments on that YouTube video of Pat hitting the home run, there's a couple from kids saying, I'm in his camp. One saying, hi, Pat, it's Ashton. I went to one of his camps. He gets loud. And somebody responded, yes, you're right, but he helped me. And so it's very nice to see and good to see that Pat, while he had some difficult times in the pros, was maybe pushed out before he felt he was ready to go. He made that unexpected run as a 26-year-old rookie and then kept it up for a little while. And now he's back home and and doing good work with kids and and helping out some kids. Well, it's a great story and a, a great central and southern Illinois story, which always makes us happy here. So thanks a lot, David. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever had a great night at the bar with a gal named Betty, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.